Section 66 of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The World's Story, Volume 9, England. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 66. The Trial of Sir Thomas More, 1535, by Anne Manning Rathbone. Sir Thomas More, who had succeeded Wolsey as Chancellor, did not approve of Henry's separation from the Catholic Church, and refused to acknowledge him as the head of the Church in England. For this he was brought to trial on the charge of treason. The following selection is taken from the supposed journal of More's daughter. The Editor. July 1st. By reason of Will's minding to be present at the trial, which, for the concourse of spectators, demanded his early attendance, he committed the care of me, with Bess, to Dancy, who got us places to see Father on his way from the tower to Westminster Hall. We could not come at him for the crowd, but clambered on a bench to gaze our very hearts away after him, as he went by, sallow, thin, grey-haired, yet in mean not a whit cast down, wrapped in a coarse woolen gown and leaning on a staff, which unwanted support when Bess marked she hid her eyes on my shoulder and wept sore, but soon looked up again, though her eyes were so blinded I think she could not see him. His face was calm but grave as he came up, but just as he passed he caught the eye of someone in the crowd and smiled in his old frank way, then glanced up towards the window with the bright look he hath so oft cast to me at my casement, but saw us not. I could not help crying, Father! But he heard me not. Perchance twas so best. I would not have had his face cloud at the sight of poor Bessie's tears. Will tells me the indictment was the longest ever heard, on four counts. First, his opinion on the king's marriage. Second, his writing sundry letters to the Bishop of Rochester, counselling him to hold out. Third, refusing to acknowledge his grace's supremacy. Fourth, his positive denial of it, and thereby willing to deprive the king of his dignity and title. When the reading of this was over, the Lord Chancellor saith, You see how grievously you have offended the king his grace, but, and yet, he is so merciful, as that if ye will lay aside your obstinacy and change your opinion, we hope ye may yet obtain pardon. Father makes answer, and at the sound of his dear voice all men hold their breaths. Most noble lords, I have great cause to thank your honours for this your courtesy but I pray Almighty God I may continue in the mind I'm in, through his grace, until death. They could not make good their accusation against him. T'was only on the last count he could be made out a traitor, and proof of it they had none. How could they have? He should have been acquitted out of hand. Stead of which his bitter enemy, my Lord Chancellor, called on him for his defence. Will saith there was a general murmur or sigh ran through the court. Father, however, answered the bidding by beginning to express his hope that the effect of long imprisonment might not have been such upon his mind and body as to impair his power of rightly meeting all the charges against him, when, turning faint with long standing, he staggered and loosed hold of his staff, whereon he was accorded a seat. Twas but a moment's weakness of the body, and he then proceeded frankly to avow his having always opposed the king's marriage to his grace himself which he was so far from thinking high treason, that he should rather have deemed it treachery to have withholden his opinion from his sovereign king, when solicited by him for his counsel. 
His letters to the good bishop he proved to have been harmless. Touching his declining to give his opinion when asked concerning the supremacy, he alleged there could be no transgression in holding his peace thereon, God only being cognizant of our thoughts. Nay, interposeth the Attorney General, your silence was the token of a malicious mind. I had always understood, answers father, that silence stood for consent. Qui tacet consentiri videtur, which made sundry smile. On the last charge, he protested he had never spoken word against the law unto any man. The jury are about to acquit him, when up starts the Solicitor General, offers himself as witness for the Crown, is sworn, and gives evidence of his dialogue with Father in the Tower, falsely adding, like a liar as he is, that on his saying, no Parliament could make a law that God should not be God, Father had enjoined, no more could they make the king supreme head of the church. I marvel the ground opened not at his feet. Father briskly made answer. If I were a man, my lords, who regarded not an oath, ye know well I needed not stand now at this bar. And if the oath which you, Mr. Rich, have just taken be true, then I pray I may never see God in the face. In good truth, Mr. Rich, I am more sorry for your perjury than my peril. You and I once dwelt long together in one parish. Your manner of life and conversation from your youth up were familiar to me, and it paineth me to tell ye were ever held very light of your tongue, a great dicer and gamester, and not of any commendable fame, either there or in the temple, the inn to which ye have belonged. Is it credible, therefore, to your lordships, that the secrets of my conscience touching the oath, which I never would reveal after the statute once made, either to the king's grace himself, nor to any of you, my honourable lords, I should have thus lightly blurted out in private parley with Mr. Rich? In short, the villain made not good his point. Nevertheless, the issue of this black day was aforehand fixed. My lord Audley was primed with a virulent and venomous speech. The jury retired, and presently returned with a verdict of guilty, for they knew what the king's grace would have him do in that case. Up starts my lord Audley, commences pronouncing judgment, when, My lord, says father, in my time the custom in these cases was ever to ask the prisoner before sentence, whether he could give any reason why judgment should not proceed against him. My lord, in some confusion, puts the question. And then came the frightful sentence. Yes, yes, my soul, I know. There were saints of old sawn asunder, men of whom the world was not worthy. Then he spake unto them his mind, and bade his judges and accusers farewell, hoping that like as St. Paul was present and consenting unto St. Stephen's death, and yet both were now holy saints in heaven, so he and they might speedily meet there, joint heirs of everlasting salvation. Meantime poor Bess and Cecily, spent with grief and long waiting, were forced to be carried home by Heron, or ever father returned to his prison. Was less feeling or more strength of body enabled me to bide at the tower wharf with Dancy? God knoweth. They brought him back by water. My poor sisters must have passed him. The first thing I saw was the axe, turned with its edge towards him, my first note of his sentence. I forced my way through the crowd. Someone laid a cold hand on mine arm. Twas poor Pattison. So changed I hardly knew him. With a rosary of gooseberries he kept running through his fingers. He saith, Bide your time, Mistress Meg. When he comes past, I'll make a passage for ye. 
Oh, brother, brother, what ailed thee to refuse the oath? I've taken it. In another moment, now, mistress, now, and flinging his arms right and left, made a breach, through which I darted, fearless of bills and halberds, and did cast mine arms about father's neck. He cries, My Meg, and hugs me to him as though our very souls should grow together. He saith, Bless thee, bless thee. Enough, enough, my child. What mean ye to weep and break mine heart? Remember, though I die innocent, tis not without the will of God, who could have turned mine enemies' hearts if twere best. Therefore possess your soul in patience. Kiss them all for me, thus and thus. So gave me back into Dancy's arms, the guards about him all weeping, but I could not lose sight of him for ever. So after a minute's pause did make a second rush, break away from Dancy, clave to father again, and again they had pity on me, and made pause while I hung upon his neck. This time there were large drops standing on his dear brow, and the big tears were swelling into his eyes. He whispered, Meg, for Christ's sake, don't unman me. Thou'lt not deny my last request. I said, Oh, no, and at once loosened mine arms. God's blessing be with you, he saith with a last kiss. I could not help crying, My father, my father. The chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, he vehemently whispers, pointing upwards with so passionate a regard that I look up, almost expecting a beatific vision. And when I turn about again, he's gone. And I have no more sense nor life till I find myself again in my own chamber, my sisters chafing my hands. July 5th. All's over now. They've done their worst, and yet I live. There were women could stand beneath the cross. The Maccabees' mother. Yes, my soul, yes, I know. Naught but unpardoned sin. The chariot of Israel. Sixth. Dr. Clement hath been with us. Saith he went up as blithe as a bridegroom to be clothed upon with immortality. Rupert stood it all out. Perfect love casteth out fear. So did his. Seventeenth. My most precious treasure is this dear billet, writ with a coal, the last thing he set his hand to, wherein he saith, I never liked your manner towards me better than when you kissed me last. Nineteenth. They have let us bury his poor mangled trunk. But as sure as there's a sun in heaven, I'll have his head before another sun hath risen too. Footnote. It was the custom to expose on London Bridge the heads of those who had been executed for treason. End of footnote. If wise men won't speed me, I'll e'en content me with a fool. I do think men, for the most part, be cowards in their hearts, moral cowards. Here and there we find one like Father, and like Socrates, and like this one and that one, I mind not their names just now, but in the main, methinketh they lack the moral courage of women. Maybe I'm unjust to em just now, being crossed. July 20th. I lay down, but my heart was waking. Soon after the first cock crew, I heard a pebble cast against my lattice, knew the signal, rose, dressed, stole softly down and let myself out. I knew the touch of the poor fool's fingers, his teeth were chattering twixt cold and fear, yet he laughed beneath his breath as he caught my arm and dragged me after him, whispering, Fool and fair lady will cheat him yet. At the stairs lay a whirry with a couple of boatmen, and one of them, stepping up to me, cries, Alas for Ruth, Mistress Meg, what is it you do? Art mad to go on this errand? I said, I shall be mad if I go not, and succeed, too. Put me in and push off. We went down the river quietly enough. 
at length reach london bridge stairs pattison starting up says by geals yar and springs a land and runneth up to the bridge anon returns and saith now mistress all's ready readier than you wist come up quickly for the coast's clear hobson for twas he helps me forth saying god speed ye mistress and i dared i would go with ye thought i there be others in that case nor looked i up till aneath the bridge gate when casting upward a fearsome look i beheld the dark outline of the ghastly yet precious relic and falling into a tremor did wring my hands and exclaim alas alas that head hath lain full many a time in my lap would god would god it lay there now when a sudden i saw the pole tremble and sway towards me and stretching forth my apron i did in an ecstasy of gladness pity and horror catch its burthen as it fell pattison shuddering yet grinning cries under his breath managed i not well mistress let's speed away with our theft for fools and their treasures are soon parted but i think not they'll follow hard after us neither for there are well-wishers to us on the bridge i'll put ye in the boat and then say god speed ye lady with your burthen End of section 66. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Colleen McMahon.